Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're spiritually prepared for the study of God's word which means that we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, uh, filled by means of God the Holy Spirit, so that it is the Holy Spirit who can use uh, what we learn uh, to store it in our souls and to use it where it's profitable for our spiritual life and spiritual growth. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we're just so thankful for your grace, your goodness to us, the fact that you have provided us with so much. You've given us your word and all of the tremendous uh, riches of your word that we might come to learn who you are and that we might come to grow uh, closer to you as a result of our knowledge of who you are and that we might uh, come to serve you because you are the God who created all things. And, Father, we're just thankful that you've given us such a gracious, great salvation, and that you have given us so much related to our spiritual life. Father, as we study your word this evening, may we just be mindful of these things and of the tremendous privilege we have to study your word, and that we might not take these things lightly, but that we might be serious in our study and application of your word, knowing that the only thing that counts for eternity are those things that have eternal value, which means our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 11. We're down to about verse 4. Down to about verse 4. But before we get started, and while you're turning there in your Bibles, I wanted to make a couple of comments. This evening we had a deacons meeting, and of course uh, Mark Friedrich's one of our deacons, and he heads up the prep school. And he was talking a little bit about uh, exercise that they've been doing with it in the teen class. And this is important for parents to be aware of as well, and that is that he's been running them through some exercises on witnessing and why it's important to witnessing and to talk to uh, their friends at school. And eventually when they get to that point where they uh, start getting interested in um, boys or girls or whichever the case may be, where they start to uh, get interested in dating, the importance of finding out if the other person is a believer and how you go about that and using that as an opportunity to uh, using that as an opportunity to witness and how to go about that. And he's been discovering some interesting things as he's talked to the kids. Well, well, they're Methodist. Of course they're saved. Or, you know, they, they, they go to church or they, they say they're a Christian, but, you know, just really getting down to the, uh, to, to the real issues. 
and I was uh, laughing. It reminded me of the drill sessions, the grill sessions that I used to get from my mother, and she started that young. I thought that was a, just a great example of parenting. And I remember as early as second grade coming home, and I'd say, well, I met so-and-so, this guy at school today, and, and he lives down the street, and we're gonna, I'm going to go over there and play this afternoon. And she, the first question out of her mouth was, well, you need to find out that he's a believer. And and she established that pattern very early so that, and, and when I would come home, she'd say, well, is he a Christian? Is he a, she would always say, is he a believer? And I'd say, well, yeah. Well, how do you know? What did you say? What did he say? Did he actually say that he believed in Jesus Christ as his Savior? Does he think you need to be baptized? I mean, she would just absolutely exegete the whole con- conversation but by establishing those kind of parameters uh, and the in kind of interrogation I would get, I knew that, you know, you, you, as a parent you establish that so that by the time they get into those critical years in junior high and high school, you've already laid down a whole pattern of, uh, of behavior there that they know exactly what to expect when they come home and they say, well, I've got to go to a dance this weekend and I've asked so-and-so to go or I've been asked by so-and-so to go to the dance with them and they know the first question out of your mouth is going to be, well, are they a believer? How do you know? How did the conversation go? What did they say? Do they go to church? And, you know, a lot of times I find that parents don't get, there's a, there's, parents too often forget that, ch- that children are not their Peers, you may not grill your peers like that, but as a parent who is responsible for the training of children, you are a training officer, like a drill sergeant in the military. There's not 100% parallels there, so you know you're not going to get up in the morning and blow reveille and you know call them down to do push-ups. You might do that though; that might help in some cases, but. Um, there, there is, you're responsible at, to, before the Lord for how those uh, children turn out when they become adults and establishing those behavior patterns and their thought patterns as early as you can just to get those set in their minds is, uh, is really, uh, really important. And then, of course, as a parent, you should be modeling that as well in your friendships and in your associations, and that's, of course, where it starts getting real personal and, well, wait, wait, that's, that, that's getting a little too close. Let's, uh, let's move on to the next verse. So, but that's where it matters, and that's the pattern of being a good parent, being a good leader, being a, you know, in terms of being a pastor, being a church leader, is that those kinds of things are set by example. We learn many, many things in life, not just because we're taught the principles from the pulpit, but because we see, we get a visual representation of those uh, principles being applied through those that we, we observe. And I remember many years when I grew up at, at Camp and I, one of the things I valued so much during the summers when I would go up there in high school was just being around uh, older Christians, and by that I meant they were 25 or 30 or maybe 22, but you're 16 and you just think 22 is just, they're, they're old. 
and and yet there you would see college kids that were very concerned about their spiritual life and, and Bible study and thinking through the issues of life in terms of what the Scripture said. And that just set such a great uh, example. And uh, later on, and you know this as well as I do, you've had the same kind of things happen in your life. As you're going through certain situations, you think, oh, I remember when so-and-so, who's an older, more mature believer, went through something like this, and this is how, how they set an example. And so that's, that's important. And that's the idea that we have here in these passages is the example of these Old Testament believers that even though they may be dead for 6,000 years, for example, in the case of Abel, uh, nevertheless, their testimony, as uh, the writer states at the end of verse 4, uh, the testimony still is alive. God testifying of his gifts, and, and through it, that is through his faith and through his example, he being dead still speaks. So we also need to learn as parents, teaching your children, having a regular time of uh, Bible study with, with the family is very important. Modeling that, that decision-making process before uh, your, your children, husbands, before your wives, you've got decisions to make. Well, let's go to the Scripture, find parallel uh, circumstances, parallel situations, and think through how this biblical uh, figure either blew it or didn't blow it, and what the principles are that we, we learn for that. And that's what we see in, in the writer of Hebrews doing in Hebrews 11 is he's going through the roster of, of uh, spiritual leaders in the Old Testament, key people in the Old Testament, focusing on their testimony. And that testimony is a witness. It is the evidence of something in their life, their spiritual life. So faith, as we saw in verse 1, says faith is the evidence of things not seen because what faith is doing is it is believing something that isn't seen. It is not, an, ultimately it's not based on empiricism or rationalism. It is based on believing something that God has said because God said it. So the faith, uh, that faith and the life that comes the results that come in the life from uh, the act of believing God. When you believe God says to do X, if you believe it, you do it. And when you do it, that gives a visible witness before the angels and before men of the faith that, of course, can't be seen and the object of the faith, which is the promise of God, uh, promise of God being a key idea all the way through. Hebrews. So last time we looked at this, the example of Abel, and towards the end got to be a little bit of a hurry, so I wanted to just go back, clean up one or two things before we move on, that uh, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, uh, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. It is that act of believing that culminates in a right action, an obedient action that uh, establishes a witness or an attestation of that which is not seen. It attests to it, that, that idea of being a testimony 
Uh, it's a, the word that's translated there is the same word where we get our word witness or testimony, but it has this idea of commendation or confirmation or uh, testimony. All of these are, are, are ideas that are very close to one another, and so we have to, uh, I think, massage the word a little bit. If we, we look at martyrette and we think, well, that just always means to witness, there's, there's shades of meaning there that, that make a little bit more uh, more sense and clarify the passage uh, a little more. So as I pointed out last time, one of the questions that comes up in this is just on the nature of the sacrifice. Was it Abel's attitude versus Cain's attitude, or is it the kind of sacrifice that was offered? And this phrase, more excellent sacrifice, in Hebrews 11.4 suggests You couldn't hang the whole doctrine on this, but it suggests what is confirmed by other passages, that it is the quality of the sacrifice because it was what God said to do, what God said to bring. And this is uh, uh, always an an issue, and you will hear uh, if you've ever been around, as I, I think I said this last time, if you've been around Bible teachers, you listen to a KHCB, you listen to some other people talk talk about this, you may and probably will run into those who say, no, it wasn't an issue of bringing a blood sacrifice versus bringing uh, a gift from the produce of the field. It was their attitude. And uh, that really does miss miss the boat here for a couple of different reasons. It's not just the quality of Abel's faith but it is the quality of the sacrifice. It is that he brought the kind of sacrifice that God had instructed him. Now, somebody may say, well, how do you know? Well, uh, you're not told clearly anywhere in Genesis 3 about sacrifices, any kind of sacrifice. So whatever you say has got to be somewhat of a theological deduction on the basis of the rest of Scripture. And one of the ideas that has really leaked in, I don't think it's a good idea, I disagree with it very strongly, um, is this idea that you just interpret stuff in light of what, how, what that author says or you just interpret it in terms of what would have been understood by the original audience. In fact, there is a... Um, it has become more dominant. I've seen in, in Old Testament studies in the last, and among Old Testament scholars in the last few years, to use this methodology and to say that uh, you can't say that the serpent in Genesis 3 is Satan because it, nowhere in Genesis does the text identify the serpent as Satan. Uh, nowhere at all. Uh, the only place that that's identified is in Revelation chapter uh, chapter 12, the dragon, the serpent of old. And so you can't go to something written 3,000 years later to define uh, what's, what's something that's written earlier, and that's, that's the methodological assumption. The problem is that Revelation 12 actually does define who that serpent is, and so... Uh, and there's indications in the Old Testament that that was, uh, that was understood. It's just these kinds of things that leak into hermeneutics that start causing major shifts in, in people's theology and the orientation of, of seminaries and, and things of that nature. It's the same pattern that we saw 
You go back to the end of the 19th century and the influence of the human viewpoint thinking that came from the rationalistic schools of Germany in the 19th century. They threw out uh, inerrancy and infallibility. But now we've got, we live in a world of, of uh, this crazy postmodern uh, thinking where you can hold to two opposites and say, oh, well, I believe in both of them and everything's just fine. And uh, so people will will say that they believe in. I mean, I've heard the, I've heard faculty members at major schools say, when questioned on something like this, say, "Well, that may be what the." I heard that somebody say this about the doctrinal statement at Dallas Seminary. A faculty member there said that may be what Chafer intended, but that's not how I interpret that in the doctrinal statement. And, and this is just this is just very very dangerous. But I'm not picking on Dallas because this is something that is happening all around uh, evangelicalism today. Because the church always reflects and imitates the trends of the of the world system, the thinking of the world system around us. Which is why Paul says, "Don't be pressed into conformity. Don't be pushed into conformity with the thinking of the world around you, but rather be transformed." Uh, by the renewing of your mind. So you have these indications in here that, that Abel offers a sacrifice, and it's the sacrifice that is uh, more excellent, that is superior. And this is backed up by passages such as Hebrews 12:24, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. That is, the blood of Jesus' sacrifice is superior to that or says better things than that of Abel, which refers actually to his blood, because it was his blood that cried out from the ground in Genesis uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 10. A better passage is First John 3.12, which clearly says in the last phrase that uh, Cain's works were evil and his brother's righteous. It was the works, it was what they did that had the qualitative difference, not the... Uh, attitude that Cain brought or that Abel brought. Uh, Genesis 4.4, the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. So these verses put that focus on on the offering. Now we know from other passages of Scripture and from implications in Genesis 3 that God had to have killed an animal in order to clothe Adam and Eve after they sinned. And that would have, uh, we assume, but I think that these are the kinds of things that are uh, justified that when God slay, uh, when God sacrificed that animal and skinned it, that a lot had to go on there. Uh, he had to show them how to how to um, uh, how to skin the animal. He had to show, he was showing them what death was. He was giving them a a a picture, a, a real example of what he meant when he said that when you that that death was coming into the world. And so there was instruction on that. Uh, they would see everything related to death in this uh, tremendous visual, uh, visual example. Uh, furthermore, another thing that we, under, we realize from this is that it's not until after, uh, after the flood that men are authorized to eat meat. And so why is Abel raising sheep prior to that? Uh, you could say, well, for the wool, of course, for the skin, uh, for leather as well as for uh, sacrifices, so they were um, they were not eat, using the animals for meat at that particular time. 
So the idea of a blood sacrifice and the necessity of that is just something that runs all the way through uh, through the Scripture. Now, having looked at that, the writer goes on to the next example, which comes from Genesis chapter uh, chapter 5, right in the midst of the first genealogy where most people sort of get bored and they read through the Bible and they start coming to this list of names that they're not familiar with and so-and-so beget so-and-so and so-and-so beget so-and-so and then next thing you know their eyes sort of glaze over and they fall asleep and they because they don't understand the significance of those genealogies. And what is significant about the genealogies is that in Genesis chapter 3, God said the seed of the woman would defeat the seed of the serpent. And now you're going to trace the seed from father to son to grandson all the way through from generation to generation all the way down to Noah. And then when you get to Genesis 11 after the flood, you're going to trace the line of the seed again. And each time you get to subsequent genealogies, there's this historical record treating all of these people as if they were real Flesh and blood historical people. These aren't legends. They're not uh, fables or myths or uh, morality stories that were somehow generated just to teach principles. But those principles are embedded in flesh and blood people who lived real lives, who were born at a specific time and who died at a specific time and showing that God's uh, word is operating in real history. This isn't just some sort of myth, mythological, uh, mythological history. So in Genesis, in uh, Hebrews 11:5, we read, "By faith, Enoch was taken away, so that he did not see death, and he and was not found, because God had taken him." For before he was taken, he had this testimony. There's that word group again. Martyreo is the verb, meaning a, to, as a witness or to provide a testimony or attestation or something or a confirmation or commendation of something. See, each of those words you have to look up in English and kind of see what their various shades of meaning are in order to get one that fits the text and doesn't bring in other ideas that may imply a, some sort of work salvation or something else. Uh, remember, these individuals are all justified before they ever get to the action that's being emphasized in these, in these stories. We'll see that a little more with Enoch. It's less clear with Abel because little is said about him. Even less is said about Enoch, but there's some things that are uh, structure, grammatical structure of this uh, sentence in the Greek certainly indicates that um, he pleased God prior to being taken so that that pleasing of God in terms of his faith is an action that uh, is early and that the, the faith is related to something in his life. As we get into Noah and others, we'll see that clearly that they're justified. What we say is they're saved, they're justified long before the, the particular incident that is being emphasized uh, in, in the text. So by faith, Enoch was taken away. Now, what the writer's emphasizing here is that the core issue in this first rapture, because that's what it is, 
uh, the, the, of course, the word that's used here in, uh, in the Greek isn't the, the same word that you have, uh, over in, uh, over in 1 Thessalonians 4, but it's that same idea. It means to transfer something, to change it, to move it to another location. Um, it's that same idea of that you have in the rapture. Somebody, that, that word there, harpazo, means to be snatched. And what happened is that one day Enoch is just, uh, walking along and suddenly, uh, he walks off with God. He's just having a close conversation with God and walks from earth into heaven. And this is seen in Genesis 5:21 through 24. I don't have a slide on that. You can turn back there and look at it if you wish. It's a very short passage. We're told in Genesis 5:21 that Enoch lived 65 years. That was his father. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So that would make him 365 years old at this particular time. So all the days, that, which is what verse 23 says, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Very clear, very abrupt. You know, the first time I learned this, I don't know, I may have been fifth or sixth grade, and I learned this from reading Ripley's Believe It or Not. I loved that book. You know, when I, I remember discovering reading about fifth or sixth grade, and the sentence there was, Methuselah is the oldest man in the Bible, but he died before his father did. Isn't that right? He was, Methuselah was the oldest man in the Bible, but he died before his father did. Now, doesn't that sound like an odd contradiction? But that's because Enoch never died. He never physically died. He just was transferred, translated uh, directly from his physical mortal body into his spiritual body that uh, obviously wouldn't have gone to heaven from what we've understood from other revelation, went into the place the Old Testament saints went, but he just went goes through this this translation process that took him from his mortal body to his uh, to his temporary uh, transitional body. So, as we look at this verse, though, there's a few things that we ought to uh, to emphasize and just to be able to understand it a little more clearly. First of all, the emphasis is on faith. As I've said before, this is not the faith that a person exercises to be saved or justified. This is the faith that comes after they're saved, after they have trusted in the promise of God, Old Testament, which it was future, the promise of God to provide a Savior, then... After that comes their life with God. That's the emphasis there. Enoch walked with God. This this term walking, we get run into it many times in the New Testament. Walk in the light. Walk by means of the truth. Uh, walk by the Holy Spirit. Walking is a metaphor uh, for a lifestyle, for living. It's used that way in, in secular context. It's used that way in, in Scripture. And his walking with God indicates that this was his lifestyle. This was the priority of Enoch's life was his relationship with God. And he must have had a very close and personal relationship with God. And it's not like the walk with God that you or I have. This was a much more direct walk with God. What happens is, and this may be a new thought for some of you, those of you who have gone through the Genesis series 
Now, I've heard this before, but when God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden, the Eden was actually, uh, the Garden was actually east of Eden. Eden is seen as the dwelling place of God upon the earth. And that this was where he would come and he would uh, go to the garden to walk daily with Adam and Eve, to spend time with them, to teach them, to give them information, to answer, answer questions. And then when uh, Adam sinned and they are cast out of the garden, then there is a, uh, a wall of fire that's placed around the garden by this group of cherubs, more than one. There was a contingent of, of cherubs. There could have been as many as a hundred or two hundred that guarded the perimeter of the garden so that man could not re-enter the garden and have access to the tree of life and thus live uh, forever, avoiding physical death, but he would still be spiritually dead. That's another reason why I think that the main thrust of the warning that man would die when they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not physical death primarily there, but spiritual death is that if it was automatic physical death, then they couldn't have circumvented it by coming back and having access to the to the tree of life, the fruit of the tree of life. So they're kept out. Uh, you know, interesting, Sunday went out to lunch with some people, and one of the questions that came up, people ask the most interesting questions sometimes. Well, how big was the Garden of Eden? How big do you think it was? Could Adam and the woman leave the garden? Could they go out and go around the earth? Could they come back in? Uh, I think they could because of the dominion mandate there in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 that they were to multiply and fill the earth and exercise dominion over all the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field. And so I think they could leave to go out and explore all and learn about all that God had created uh, for them, but the garden was a special area. This was their home. This was where they would they would meet with God, and it was near to where God had a location. But we're not told that when they were cast out of the garden that God left the earth. We're not told that. Now, what I want you to do is hold your place here in Hebrews 11, because when we get to the next verse dealing with Noah, we'll go to Genesis 6 anyway. So I want you to turn with me back to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6 talks about the conditions that are on the earth before uh, the judgment of the flood with Noah. And in Genesis 6, 3... We read in the King James, New King James, and it's the same thing through the King James Bible and probably some of the other translations. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Now that seems to make sense. There's a context there where man is being disobedient, so there's a conflict between God and man. But the Hebrew word that's translated strive is only used one time in the Hebrew Old Testament, and it's only used one time in any surviving Hebrew literature. So we have to basically guess from context as to what that means, and that's what those translators of the King James Bible did. They guessed. 
What seems to make sense here? Ah, well, there's conflict between God and man, so let's translate this strive. Well, things like that get embedded in tradition and in, and in history, and later on when you think there's evidence to go another direction, it's hard to do that because people don't like uh, familiar words in the Bible messed with. We learned that back with the RSV controversy in the 50s when... Uh, the liberal translators of the RSV decided that Isaiah 7.14 shouldn't be translated that a virgin will conceive, but that a young woman will conceive. I don't know. They must, sometimes these scholars, you know, they get so, they get educated beyond the ability to think because the passage says you'll see a sign that a young woman will get pregnant. Now, how can that be a sign? It happens every day. I bet there's going to be at least a thousand young women get pregnant in Houston tonight. You know, what's so special about that? But this is a sign, so there's got to be something unique about this. And the word translated uh, um, virgin there, uh, actually there's strong evidence that it should be understood as virgin in a number of different contexts and especially there. But, man, there was such a hue and cry uttered by uh, conservatives in the 50s when that Revised Standard Version came out that, that it hurt their sales. So ever since then, these Bible translation publishers have been... Uh, uh, very careful about not messing with uh, traditional familiar terminology because it might hurt their bottom line. They are, you know, they do want to at least turn a profit uh, in their uh, Bible publications. Well, this word that is translated strive is a word that in the 20th century we've discovered it's cognate. That means it's a similar word. It's the same root, but it's used, it's a little different. Uh, in, in very, in languages that are very close to Hebrew. For example, Canaanite and Aramaic and Hebrew are closer to one another than, um, Spanish and Italian or, or Latin. Uh, Arabic is very close to Hebrew. I'm told that, uh, in Israel that, uh, uh an Israeli that has grown up speaking Hebrew, if they're uh, if they listen carefully to someone speaking Arabic, they can kind of get a sense of what they're talking about because the languages are so very close. Well, when you study these other languages, and that's one of the things that you have to do if you're, if you're doing word studies and you have words that are used less than five or six times in the Hebrew Old Testament or Greek New Testament, you have to go out beyond the scriptures to other places, look at cognate languages. I remember when I was in seminary having to learn the Akkadian alphabet and having to learn how to, uh, the Arabic alphabet and all these different things so that I could go look these words up. Of course, as soon as that course was over with, I forgot how to read those uh, alphabets, but it's all still in the file somewhere. And thank God we have computers to help us now. But one of the things you discover is that in Aramaic and Arabic and Akkadian, the cognate to this word, and there's a lot of examples, doesn't mean strive, it means abide. Abide. And what God is saying here is, my spirit shall not abide or live. That's just like the same word minnow in the New Testament. Shall not live with man forever because God is still has a dwelling place on the earth in Eden. And you ask the question, well, why does God after the flood establish, uh, 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 establish or delegate adjudication in murder trials? Because before the flood, God's the one who's adjudicating the affairs of men. 
And that's exactly what you see in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. God is the one who's coming to deal with the, the crime of murder. And so God is still, it, it makes perfect sense from the, this evidence that God is still present on the earth. And it is Enoch is walking with God. This is profound. He is not just walking with God in terms of having a good spiritual life. He is physically spending time with the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ in the antediluvian earth. And he's spending so much time with God one day that he just walks off with him and just isn't going to go through physical death at all. We can't even imagine uh, what that was like. It just says he walked with God and he was not. There he was and then he was gone. And physical body and everything just, just translated and uh, moved right on. So Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And that idea of seeing death is really an idiom for experiencing death. He doesn't experience physical death. And then, and I put it in quotations in the, uh, the way I, I put it in the, on the screen because literally that next phrase is a direct quote out of the, uh, out of the Septuagint. He was not found because God had taken him. And that indicates that they looked for him. Where'd he go? Methuselah's out there looking for his dad. His sons are looking for their grandfather. But they can't find him. And he just walked off with God. And then we read, for before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, notice the way that is, that's translated there. You can go with me. Keep your place back in Genesis 6, because we'll go back there again when we get to know in a minute. But when we look at that verse in, in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 11, it says, before he was taken, he had this testimony. That indicates that there, the testimony was there before he's taken. So the testimony comes, that's the attestation of his faith, his actions of believing and acting upon what God told him was there before he, before he left. But it, it's a little fuzzy in the last phrase, for before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. It's translated there as if it's saying that the testimony was that he pleased God. And that's not the way it's, it's, it's really uh, best to be understood uh, in the original. We have um, the w- verb there for testimony is from martyreo. It's a perfect passive indicative. The perfect tense indicates completed action. It is already done in the past. And passive means that he receives a validation or attestation of something that he has done. So it reads, he had already, it should read that before he was taken, he had already been attested. It had already happened, that's the perfect tense. Been attested is the passive voice. It had already been attested, and then you don't have a 
You don't have a, a, a purpose clause there that he pleased God. It's an infinitive, but it is simply he, and it, what, it, it completes the idea of the main verb. It had already been attested to please God. He had already been validated. His life, he was pleasing God. And the word there that's translated, uh, pleasing God is a word that indicates that he, what he, the way he lived was acceptable. It was satisfactory that God is, as it were, approving of his actions. So what it means is, first of all, Enoch pleased God because of his consistent obedience and his walk by means of faith. Uh, that pleasing of God was evidence or testimony. It attested to the reality of his faith and trust in what God told him. And then the result of that was that God then transferred him directly to heaven. And so sort of a expanded translation, just to give us the idea of the, the nuances there, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he would not see death. See, that's a, really a purpose clause there. The reason he was taken away was so that he would not go through death. It is a clear construction of a purpose, of an infinitive of purpose there. And he was not found because God had taken him. That's your quote from the Old Testament. For before he was transferred, he had already been attested to please God. It had already been validated, already commended as uh, pleasing God. And then what the writer is going to do in the next verse is having mentioned this idea of pleasing God, he's going to take sort of an aside to explain something about the relationship between this idea of faith and pleasing God and what this idea of being attested to is all about. And that comes in verse 6, a verse that many people have memorized and many people quote when they talk about faith and they talk about the Christian life, uh, states, but without faith it is impossible to please him. Speaking of God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, that is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, rewarder, rewarding someone for diligently seeking him isn't talking about justification because that's not what's going on with Enoch. That's not what's going on with Abel. That's not going on with anybody in this passage. All the examples that we have all the way through this passage are examples of believers walking by faith, believing God and acting upon that in their uh, life after their justification. So it has to do with reward rather than the free gift of salvation. See, there's a difference between a gift and a reward. A gift is something that you just are given freely. You don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. It's just freely given to you. And a reward is something that you have done something for. You know, you're rewarded for it. You have given somebody information about a crime, so you get a reward. But you've done something for it. You have worked for it, and so you get an extra uh, bonus in, in your uh, in your salary because of uh, the fact that you've met certain goals in, in sales or something like that. That is something that you do something for. So we're not talking about 
salvation, justification, because that is by grace and that is a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not from works. But a reward is based on works. So there's a distinction drawn here. And what the writer is saying, without faith, you can't please God. That's that's the point of application, talking about Enoch. Enoch walked so consistently by faith, and it pleased God. God puts the stamp of approval on the life of Enoch. What's interesting is we don't know anything about it. There's only one verse in the New Testament that deals with Enoch other than this one, and that's in Jude 14, which mentions a prophecy in the book of Enoch, First Enoch, which is not even a, an apocryphal book. It's just a non-canonical book. It was never considered by the Jews to have any claim to being uh, inspired scripture. It never even makes the, uh, it, it didn't even make the first cut. So it's it's just out there, but there's a lot of people. In fact, we have have it now, and people get it and read it, and there's some interesting prophecies in there and some interesting things that people want to speculate about because they think somehow it might have some value. But uh, people, even from the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and New Testament, were just uh, fascinated by the, the this mysterious Enoch who just walked with God and was not. So you have an apocalypse of Enoch that was written in the intertestamental period and three or four other books that were written. Philo wrote a bunch of stuff about uh, Enoch, and it's all just uh, speculation and guesswork because there was nothing... Uh, no hard data, so it, it's uh, it's easy to make stuff up about somebody when when there's no evidence about uh, anything in their life. But we don't know anything about him except that God has said his life of faith and walk with the Lord was so consistent that it pleased God, such that God did something unique in him only. Only one other person gets translated directly from physical body into the afterlife, and that's Elijah in the chapter that we're studying in uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 2, is that the, in the storm there, Elijah's taken, uh, in the, um, taken, taken directly uh, to heaven. So, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And the word there for impossible is as strongly stated as it possibly can be. That means when we are not walking by faith and we're walking by sight, Second Corinthians chapter 5, then we're not pleasing God. We can only please God when we're walking by faith, and that means that we're trusting God. It's not faith in faith, as I pointed out, uh, last week, but it is faith in something that God has said to us, a promise, uh, a uh, various uh, areas of instruction, mandates. We are believing that to be true, and it causes a certain action on our part. So without faith, it is impossible to please God. And here we have the word for pleasing. It's uh, eurestia. And it's a perfect active infinitive because, once again, it's emphasizing that sort of completed action. Uh, Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. Now, the interesting thing about this this particular passage, especially in the Scripture, uh, especially in the Greek, is that the phrases are, are, are really mixed up because of emphasis. 
and the writer starts off saying, for to believe it is necessary, uh, the one who comes to God, that he is. See, that doesn't make much sense if you take, take it in that word order, but that's because the writer of Scripture is emphasizing he moves that infinitive to believe up to the very front for emphasis, for emphasis, and then he puts the verb, it is necessary, second, because he wants to make sure you really understand it is, there's, there's no options here. It's absolutely, uh, unequivocally, uh, necessary. It is the sole condition for pleasing God. And then the one who comes must believe that he is. And then all you have there is just simply the, the, uh, the verb which contains the pronoun. So it emphasizes God's existence. You must believe that he is. Number one, that he's real and that the existence of God is as real to you as the existence of your mother or your father or your best friend or anybody you see in this room. That's the idea of faith. When faith is really acting, when the object of faith is just as real to you as anything you can touch or feel or presently, uh, presently experience. So, the writer says, he who comes to God must believe, first of all, that he is, and secondly, these are two different things, secondly, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And the way this is structured in the Greek, the emphasis is on uh, those who seek him. And it's separated out. These clauses make separate these as two distinct ideas, one, that God is, and second, that those who seek him uh, believe he uh, he is a rewarder of uh, of them. So the idea there is God rewards those who diligently seek Him. In other words, salvation is one thing because that gets you justification and your eternal destiny is secure. But the second part is there is something that we earn, which are rewards. Uh, that are related to the amount of time that we put in in faith. Now, that sounds really challenging, doesn't it? And I can tell by looking at most of you that you're thinking, boy, this is really serious. How in the world am I ever going to measure up? One of the things that I always enjoy about this particular chapter is that there's a biggest bunch of screw-ups in the Bible listed in Hebrews chapter 11. As we go through this, we're going to see they failed. And we're getting ready to talk about, I mean, the first two guys, there's nothing negative. Abel didn't live long enough probably, and, and, the only thing, and nothing is said about Enoch, so we don't know how they messed up. But when we get to Noah, he has this great uh, victory where one big issue in life is are you going to trust God to save your family and build an ark, and he does. We get to Abraham, and we've studied Abraham, and Abraham made a lot of bad decisions. He made a lot of bad decisions that are worse than decisions I make. Maybe mine are worse than his. I don't know. But Abraham ends up in this chapter. We get on down to Jephthah and Gideon and Samson, and we think, man, Samson, Samson, he was just a a womanizing, out-of-control, wild man. And he ends up here. Why? Because at, at key turning points, key times in people's lives, it is critical. Are you going to trust God or not? And this is going to shape the rest of your life. And are you willing to trust God at that moment 
when everything is riding on that decision, are you willing to truly take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and Scripture and do what the Bible says? And that's going to make all the difference. And that's, you know, I think it's helpful to remember that because we all tend to get a little too hard on ourselves, not that we shouldn't be. I'm not saying be, you know, just just give in to your uh, sin nature that's not really all that bad, but... Um, God, I think, is not going to be a harsh judge at the judgment seat of Christ. He is going to be a gracious judge. God has to have a lot of grace to put these guys in this chapter. That gives me a lot of encouragement that maybe I'm not as large of a uh, screw-up as uh, I think sometimes. Okay, so uh, the principle is without faith, that is without that faith rest drill, without that growth in the practice, the application of the word of God, it's impossible to please him. Explanation for he who comes to God must believe that he is, number one, and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And is that true about your your life? Even even David, with all the great sins he did, David God said, but even though he messed up to the max, at the very core, his heart is focused on me. He that's what drives David is his relationship with God. Did that mean he didn't really mess up at times? No, but he really did. But he at the core was that desire to please the Lord and to obey him. Now we come to our next example in uh, verse 7. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen. There we go. The writer keeps tying together these previous phrases. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. So by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not seen. The content of the warning and the idea there is accurately communicated in this uh, translation. The idea of the warning here isn't just a warning. It is a divine warning. It, the, the word indicates that there is, there is specific supernatural information communicated uh, to warn uh, Noah that Noah, by faith Noah, uh, actually, the participle there should be translated as a temporal participle, and since it's in the aorist tense, it should be after he was divinely warned. After he was divinely warned. First he's warned, then he does something. There's a time sequence there. After he was divinely warned of things not yet seen. What was he told? It said it's going to rain. It hadn't rained before. When God used that word for rain, it was a word that Noah had never heard before. Nobody had ever seen rain Nobody had any idea what that was. But God explained it to Noah. He knew what what it was going to entail. No one had ever seen rain before. No one had seen a flood before. And he didn't live in an area that was near one of the oceans. And so he started building a boat. It took him 100 years to, to build the ark. And, and because one reason it took him so long was because he had an evangelistic mission to warn the people of that day. And so he did. So he uh, preached the word, the warning, the message of God's grace for uh, over 100 years and didn't get a single taker. 
but he was a success. See, this is one of the problems we have in modern uh, 20th century Western civilization is we think success is measured in quantifiable results. But as far as God is concerned, what's important in a servant, and we're all servants of God, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 4.2, what is required of a servant is that they be found faithful. He doesn't say what's required of a servant is that they have a lot of converts. He doesn't say that what's required of a lot of servants is that they memorize all the Bible. What's required of a lot of servants is that they pray ten times a day. No, what is required of a servant is that they are found uh, faithful to God. So Noah was faithful, and he fulfilled the mission that God gave him. Uh, after he was divinely warned of things not yet seen, that there would be this great flood, Then the text says he was moved with godly fear. And this is an interesting word. It's the Greek word eula beomai, eula beomai, and it's an aorist passive participle, which indicates that it has an action that is related to the verb, previously to the verb. But it is really used adverbially here to talk about the verb, which the main verb here is to prepare. So it modifies that word prepare, and it explains the manner of that preparation. So we would call it an adverbial participle of manner because it's saying something about the attitude he had uh, when he went about building the ark. That next verb there indicates his, his construction of the ark, and it means to prepare something, to construct something, to build it, or to create it. And so we should understand this to mean that he was moved not with godly fear. God isn't anywhere in this. Uh, there's no word translated God or godly. It is a word, though, that indicates uh, some sort of reverential regard for something or respect for something. And uh, its other uses in the Scripture, it indicates being anxious about something are, are concerned. And I think that really brings it out, as I said, as I put it in a uh, sort of an expanded translation, it's not just that he responded out of respect for God, he basically responds out of the fear of God because he knows what's going to happen. God made it very clear how he was going to destroy the earth, and there was a sense of real awe and fear and concern uh, that that dominated his his attitude. It is respect for God's authority, but it's a respect for what God can do. He understands what the power of God, and that when he says he's going to destroy the whole earth by water, that that is extremely serious, and that God is going to do exactly that. So he acts. See, faith looks at the statement of God and says, if that is true, then I need to be doing this. And the this is what God told him to do, which was to construct the ark. And so he constructed the ark for the salvation, and the idea there isn't justification, but for the physical deliverance of his house, that is, his family. And then the scripture goes on to say, through his faith... He condemned the world. See, his faith stands as an evidence, as a witness, as someone who takes the stand in a trial, except here you have the the physical representation 
of Noah doing exactly what God said to do, and everybody else in the world is thumbing their nose at God and doing what they want to do, and they're hostile to God, and they're ridiculing Noah, and they're laughing at him for building this uh, big boat and thinking it's going to rain because that's never happened before. But his life, his obedience, his action of acting on what God said is what provides the testimony that condemns the world. It's evidence that they could have been doing the same thing, but they didn't because they rejected the word, uh, the word, the message of the gospel. And as a result, he became an heir of righteousness, which is by faith. And the concept there is that becoming an heir of righteousness comes by faith. That is post-salvation faith. Now, we get this idea. We've gone over this before. Romans 8, 17. Now, the, the white lettering up there uh, depicts the verse as it's punctuated in most English translations. Remember, there was no punctuation in the original Greek. They didn't even have spaces between the words. The second verse, in uh, second rendering of the verse in uh, yellow has repunctuated it so that there is um, a distinction between heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. In the normal rendering, it's if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, as if they're referring to the same thing. But that would mean, because of the last clause, the conditional clause, that to be an heir of God and a fellow heir of Christ, which in the context, at least some of this has to be related to salvation, it would be conditioned upon suffering with Christ. And if we don't suffer, well, you're not saved. So the gospel would be believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and suffer with him. Then you'll be saved. So that can't work. So we have to repunctuate. And if we put a punctuation, a comma, only after heirs of God uh, to distinguish it from joint heirs with Christ, then we have two categories, heirs of God, which relates to every believer, and joint heirs with Christ for those who press on in their spiritual life. And as a result of pressing on and living in the cosmic system, one result is that we're going to suffer. That doesn't mean that we're going to be whining and moaning about how hard life is, but that we're going to go through various tests and circumstances to stretch our faith and test our faith and to build our faith. And so that's the focus here is that only by walking by faith do we become an heir of righteousness. And that concept of heir of righteousness is parallel to the concept of being rewarded that we saw in verse 6. And that is parallel uh, to the concept of, of, um, of having that ongoing testimony that still speaks in relationship to Abel. So that this is part of the post-salvation spiritual life. Now, next time we'll come back and uh, review that just a little bit, expand the inheritance idea, and then we'll really see this developed as we get into the next example, which is from uh, Abraham in verses 8 through 12. Let's uh, bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. May we just be challenged and encouraged by what we've read, that our walk by faith, our ongoing post-salvation uh, walk by faith, studying your word, putting it into practice, is critical to our spiritual growth, our spiritual life, and our preparation for 
our future destiny as the bride of Christ, members of the bride of Christ, who will rule and reign with you in the kingdom and in eternity. Father, challenge us with these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.